you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. All right, return to our seats. So good to see everyone who's come this morning. Uh, looks like losing that extra hour of sleep might have, uh, might have left some of our folks in the bed a little bit longer this morning. And uh, that's all right. That's what you get for having a younger demographic as a church congregation. Uh, Saturday nights is sometimes late, and then Sunday morning when you got to lose an hour of sleep, it's, it, it's not fun. Uh, and I'm speaking even from experience. We went out uh, this last night for the um, beloved and men's ministry um, joint event, and it was fantastic for those who went. How many of you were there? We got out of the escape room. I had a harder time getting out of the mall, just as hard of a time getting out of the mall afterwards, but we found our way out. Um, so, yeah, and uh, it's like, yeah, I got home, and by the time I knew it, it was already 10 o'clock, which was actually 11 o'clock, and I was like, man, the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning is going to come early for me, because that's when I get up on Sundays, but, um, but so glad that you're here, right? And uh, it is the first Sunday of Lent, and uh, the weather is appropriate for the first Sunday of Lent, and... Uh, we want to jump into this thing and, and walk through it. Uh, we'll be walking through Luke most of Lent, and uh, this morning we're going to Luke 4, and you'll notice this is kind of a jump back from where we have been in the lectionary in Luke. Um, this reading is reserved for Lent in the lectionary, and so we kind of jump back to it. We'll actually jump a couple of times in, in Lent around in Luke. Uh, this is a very familiar story, probably, to most of us who've been raised in the church, but uh, Luke's, of course, version of it is, um, is very particular in some ways, and we're going to look at that this morning. Luke 4, starting at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him up to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune 
time. To which I say, just like the devil. Right? Like, I'm going to leave you alone until there's another opportunity. <laughs> um, over the past several months, I've been, re- I've been introduced uh, to a new word in my vocabulary, or a new phrase, maybe I should say. Uh, and that phrase, or that word, is anticipatory grief. Anyone familiar with that word? Any counselors, pastoral care folks in the house? Anticipatory grief. More than one of my friends who have pastoral counseling or just counseling backgrounds in general have used this word in their conversations with me as I've tried to process and describe the conflicting emotions I have been processing over a year or after a year of seeing my father's health decline in very significant ways. Now, for those who don't know, anticipatory grief is the kind of grief a person experiences when facing the eventual death of a loved one. Anticipatory grief is not grief light. It's not like a lighter form of grief. Uh, And it's not preparatory grief. I don't think it actually prepares one, but it anticipates it at least. It isn't grief light because grief is still grief, despite the adjective we may place in front of it. One of the more frustrating things I experience lately as I'm walking through this season of anticipatory grief Uh, is frequent feelings of just general disorientation. Anybody know that feeling when you walk into a room to get something and then you don't remember why you walked in the room to get it? Think of that, except it happens almost every day in weird places and at the most inopportune times. Now, uh, I have to work hard. I always have. I've always had to work harder than my peers to, like, keep things together and be an organized person because I am naturally a very scatterbrained person. For those who've worked closely with me over the past year, you've probably picked up on that, right? That there is a sense of scatteredness sometimes to my personality. Um, Those who see the way I have my library organized and the way I meticulously, meticulously take notes and build sermon journals are often surprised that those things don't come very natural to me. I have to work very hard and I have to be very disciplined to keep my life in order and to keep things together. So having now in this season of life um, these waves of disorientation that I can't seem to control are, are unnerving. Not only because they have a real effect on what I plan on doing each day and how my schedule is going to play out and what I'd like to get done in a day, but also because in general they make me feel defeated. They leave me feeling defeated. Um, Like maybe all that work I've done my whole life to stay on top of things was in vain. Ultimately, I'm just destined to be scattered. Like maybe I'll never learn after all. Or maybe if you haven't learned by now, when will you ever learn? Now like any good millennial, and I don't know if I'm a millennial or not, I'm told I'm on the cusp. If not, Generation Z or wherever I belong. Um, Anytime I have a physical or mental symptom that I'm dealing with and I don't know what causes it, Just like the rest of folks in my generation, what do we do? We Google it, right? We Google it. And by the way, that's a really bad idea because nine times out of ten, everything you have is cancer when you Google it (laughs) or a brain tumor, right? I'm having pain behind my left eye. Google, why am I having pain behind my left eye? Aneurysm or tumor, first two things that come up, right? 
A few weeks ago, I was really struggling with why I was dealing with this disorientation. I had not yet made the connection between what I was going through and why I was having these, these feelings like this. And so I Googled, why do I feel disoriented? I talked to someone about this phenomenon a while back, and they told me, it was like, if you really want to find out what's on somebody's heart and mind, look up their Google history. You'll find out what they're scared of. You'll find out what they're, what they're trying to figure out in life. So I Googled, why do I feel disoriented? And I was relieved to find that, relieved to find that when my search results came back, there are some versions of the stages of grief which include disorientation as one of the stages of grief. And while it didn't make me feel any better in the mental health department, I was still having these feelings, at least I was able now to identify the possible underlying issue that was causing them and was disrupting the flow of my daily life. Now, this Sunday is the first Sunday of Lent. Lent is 40 days, excluding Sundays, of fasting. It's a time that the church sets aside each year to fast and repent and to prepare ourselves for the events of death and resurrection. In our preaching and in our worship, Lent leads us from a time of revelation, which we call epiphany, from a time of revelation to a time of crucifixion and resurrection. Within the narrative itself, literally taking us from the moments where God reveals himself in very profound ways to the moments in which we must wrestle with the suffering and the death of Jesus and then ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. I talk a lot about this in, in my sermons and, and we've talked a lot about it in conversations in this church that worship is a way in which we bodily participate in the biblical narrative of God. It's a way in which we put our whole person into the story of the triune God that is in Scripture. Thus, Lent is a time when we might attempt to lean into those feelings of anticipatory grief as we anticipate the upcoming suffering and death of the Lord Jesus. It may not be something you're experiencing right now, but through this season, we're afforded the opportunity to lean into that feeling, to lean into those senses of what it feels like to prepare for the eventual death of someone you love as, G as Jesus' disciples prepared for that reality, even though they were in denial for most of the Gospels, a different stage of grief, denial up until the point of Jesus' death. But unlike Lent, actual grief doesn't have a timeline can I get a witness this morning, right? It doesn't have a timeline. It won't be over in 40 days. And unlike Lent, I can't schedule in my calendar when I'm going to have it or when we are going to experience it and when we're not. In our text this morning, uh, this season of Lent, by the way, has been comforting to me. It's kind of like, has anybody ever watched that, uh, that movie, Ernest Goes to Camp? Like, any Ernest fans in the house, all right? You know the scene where he's in the hospital and he realizes the children have given him poison ivy or whatever, and he goes outside and he sings that song, I sure am glad it's raining, right? Because no one can see the teardrops in my eyes. <laughs> I sent that to someone this week. They're like, man, that makes me want to jump off a bridge. Um, <laughs> but Lynn is kind of like that, right? It's like the rainy day where, for me, I am going through a time of grief and now I actually have permission to, right? Because it's this season in which we are invited to kind of lean into that and explore that. And so for me, there is some comfort about this season as well as some comfort 
regarding our text this morning, our first text of Lent. Jesus is baptized in Luke chapter 3, and in verse 22 of Luke chapter 3, the Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And Jesus is filled with the Spirit, and God's voice speaks and says, This is my beloved Son. This text then follows that. There's, a, there's an interjection of a genealogy, uh, which if you're like most Bible readers, you've skipped over and you've went to chapter 4 now. And you get to chapter 4 and you see these events unfold. So we have baptism, epiphany, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And then right after that, Jesus is thrust, quicker than any of us would like it, right into the wilderness. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is a remarkable place in Scripture. When we talk about participating in the biblical narrative of the Scriptures, we have to talk about what wilderness means in the Scriptures because Jesus now is being incarnational. He is leaning into that, right? He is, he is moving into that biblical narrative as the Son of God because the wilderness is a remarkable place in the Bible. It is the place where Israel's story begins, it is where the Hebrew children first experienced their freedom from slavery and oppression. It is where they um, eventually entered and took control of the promised land. That happens in the wilderness, just on the other side of Jordan. The wilderness is a place in the scriptures where all kinds of really good things and really bad things happen. Um, it's a place where the Hebrew children succeed um, at following God's laws. By the way, it's also the place where they first hear God's laws. And it's the place where they first attempted to follow God's laws. And out there in the wilderness, there were times where they succeeded at following God's laws. And there were times they often failed at being obedient to God's laws. But beyond that, it was also a place where they learned to trust God for food and sustenance. It's where they learned to rely on God for bread and for meat. It's where they learned to rely on God for water, where there didn't seem to be any water. The wilderness, despite its challenges in the biblical narrative, is a place where people genuinely came close to God. Dare I say, where some came the closest to God. It is in the wilderness where Moses visits God in the tabernacle in a smoke and in a flame. It is where his face glows with the glory of God. And in some ways, Jesus going to the desert or to the wilderness, the same wilderness, by the way, not another one, the same wilderness for 40, uh, for 40 days is a way in which Jesus is bodily participating in the biblical story of the triune God. Like the people of God who spent 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus is now going to go and spend 40 days in the wilderness and in fasting. So within the biblical narrative, there, is a, there are a lot of remarkable things to say about the wilderness. In a more literal sense, though, the wilderness is a hard place. The wilderness is not a fun place. The wilderness is vast and uninhabitable. It is where the wild things are. It is where food is hard to find and water is largely unavailable. The wilderness is a place where people get lost, and rightly so. Because wildernesses, whether that's a desert or a jungle wilderness, wildernesses are disorienting. They're disorienting. If you don't believe me how disorienting a wilderness can be, just find someone who hikes and ask them if they've ever had a moment where they got off the hiking trail and got lost. Especially if you're a rookie hiker, right? 
My brother-in-law tells a story where he did this as a rookie hiker. Not only did he make the mistake of getting off the hiking path, he also made the mistake of packing too much stuff. And after hours of finding himself walking in circles and exhausted from carrying all his stuff, he had to make the decision to empty out his clothes and use them for a fire and burn them (laughs) so that he could get the weight off and get back to his trail. If you've ever been lost in a wilderness, you know it's very disorienting. Despite your best efforts, oftentimes you find yourself just walking in circles in a place not knowing where to go or what to do. If you don't believe that, check out the story of the Israelites in the biblical narrative who wandered for 40 years in a circle. Like if you read the narrative, they went from the same camp to the same camp to the same camp. Like chapter after chapter, they're arriving back at the same places. And if you trace it, they're just walking in a circle. 40 years. And they were lost not only in the vast landscape of scorched earth under a burning sun, but they were also disoriented in their own hearts and minds as they tried to believe God's promises and understand what those promises meant for them. And this is where we find Jesus. In this remarkable place from the biblical narrative where God is found but where the wild things are And in this very literal, in a very literal sense, this place that is disorienting, this place that is uncomfortable, this place that is not fun, and Jesus is fasting. And in the midst of this fast, we are told that Jesus is visited by the devil on three occasions with three different temptations, although they're kind of the same temptation, but three different temptations. First of all, the devil says to Jesus, if you are God's son, turn this stone into bread. Secondly, he takes him and he says, I will give you all these kingdoms. I have the power over them and I can give you all these kingdoms if you will just bow down and worship me. And then finally, the devil takes him to the top of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, and tells Jesus, if you will throw yourself off of the temple, you can prove to everyone this verse of scripture that God will rescue you. If if you are really God's son, The scripture says that you won't even stump your toe on a rock. So I dare you, go ahead and throw yourself off of the temple. Now, there's a lot of things we could explore regarding the particularities of these temptations. But this morning, I'm much more interested in Jesus' responses to the temptations than I am the temptations themselves. In fact, I feel sometimes in our preaching, we spend a whole lot more time talking about the devil than we do God, at least in some of the tradition I grew up in, right? So rather than focus on the particularities of these temptations, which, by the way, are profound and good and will make for great preaching material, I want to focus more on these responses that Jesus gives to the temptations. Now, if you were raised in any tradition similar to mine, you've probably heard this passage preached with an emphasis on how we use Scripture to work our way out of temptation. In fact, I grew up thinking that it was like a, like a magical power. If you got tempted, if you just quoted enough scripture, the devil would just run away, right? Uh, and then I went through my teenage years and realized there's just not enough scripture in the world for some temptation. Um, and there's like this reckoning, this realization that there's something deeper going on here, right? Like there's something else that is happening, It's not just a message of if you use the word, you can get out of temptation. 
But there's something fuller that is being said by the words Jesus chose to use. Because when Jesus responds to these temptations by the devil in the wilderness, he quotes from Deuteronomy, or more particularly, the Torah, the law that the people of God had been given, by the way, in the wilderness. This is where it emerges from. Now, the Torah, these laws, were based off of laws, Deuteronomy in particular, because it's a second writing of the law, was based off of laws that were given to the Israelites after they were set free from the land of Egypt. They were not intended, and this is a very important nuance, I feel, to really understanding the law and its importance and, and why they even had it. But these were laws that weren't intended uh, to be rules to be followed necessarily. This wasn't like God's Big Ten and all the details and, and God needs you to follow these so that he will love you. No, God had already shown his love and provision and salvation even to the Hebrew people before he gives them these rules to follow. More importantly, these rules or these laws were meant to orient the people of God who had been conditioned by slavery and idolatry to now live in freedom and to execute justice under the watchful eye of an all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present God. It included such laws as, don't put God in a box. Y'all have never heard that one, thou shalt not put God in a box? Well, you might have heard it as, don't make any graven images and ascribe godhood to them. Because anytime you do that, you're placing all of God into something that cannot contain all of God. Rules like love God and love your neighbor, which is encompassed in the Big Ten, right? The Ten Commandments. Laws like be fair to one another, be truth tellers, respect humanity, respect the humanity of one another. Respect one another's lives. In fact, cherish life. Built within the Torah was even laws on how to have funerals for individuals you found dead and didn't know who they were. To honor them and to take care of them and to make sure that they were honored in the presence of the people so that life was something that would be seen as cherished and not something to be exploited as it was in Egypt. These laws that God gives his people help them to see how to live a life um, for one another rather, rather than a life out of their own desires, but to live life out of a larger context of loving one another. These laws invited the Israelites to envision a world in which they do not live to work as they did in Egypt, but that they live to enjoy God's goodness and his bounty and to even enjoy his rest when it was time to rest. And this is where Jesus goes when he confronts the temptations of the devil. He goes to the Torah. He goes particularly to the text about the faithfulness of God. The texts he used are mainly from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. And he tells the devil, you do not live on bread alone. And of course, the fuller text of this, but by the very words of God, the words that proceed from the mouth of God. Your life is best lived, Jesus tells the devil, lived in worship to God and not in the worship of material and fleeting things. 
Jesus tells the devil to be careful, or excuse me, that God calls us to be careful that our faith isn't based on spiritual tests and fleecing God all the time, but is a deep and abiding faith that does not require us to test God to see if God will do what God says he will do. What I begin to see as I read this, read this text over and over again this week, that as much as the wilderness is about disorientation, if within the biblical narrative and within the story of this temptation, we learn that the wilderness is also about reorientation. Jesus was tempted with the things that the devil knew would be enticing to one fasting in the wilderness. Um, for those of you who have failed on your Lent fast, you know exactly what this feels like, right? When you really need a Coca-Cola, that's when the devil tempts you with a Coca-Cola, right? Can I get a witness this morning, yeah? Those are the opportune times. And this is what Jesus is tempted with. He is tempted with the things the devil knew might be enticing to one fasting in a wilderness, especially one who claimed to be God's beloved son and on a divine mission from God. But Jesus, in the midst of the disorientation that comes from the wilderness, and in the midst of the disorientation that comes from fasting, and the desires that emerge within us as we fast, Jesus responds with texts, scriptures, that were verses of reorientation. Verses that were given to God's people to help them reorient themselves now as God's beloved children and no longer as slaves. To reorient themselves now as the children of God and not humans that just live to be exploited. These are texts of reorientation or of orientation. Scriptures given to God's people as they tried to discover what life looked like as free and liberated individuals with dignity and living as God's beloved. And maybe that's what disorientation is all about. Maybe it is about reorientation. In fact, on my chart that I found where they use disorientation as one of the stages of grief, the stage that followed disorientation was reorientation. Finding new ways to live out the new normal. And maybe that's what disorientation is all about. Things get shaken up so they can resettle in new and hopeful ways. I don't know, like beauty from ashes, if you've ever heard that before, or garments of praise when we have heavy emotions. That there's a sense in which God uses these moments of disorientation to invite us into places of reorientation. Places where we remind ourselves and the devil that God is our sustainer and the giver of life. That God is the one who protects us and watches after us. And that there's no reason to test God because God is faithful. Beauty from ashes, garments of praise from heavy emotions. The scripture's full of these word pictures in which God uses disorientation to bring about reorientation. Now that doesn't make things easier. I'm sorry. It doesn't make things easier for me either as I walk through some of these feelings and stages myself. But it does this for me at least. It gives me hope. It gives me hope. And I got to tell you, hope is a commodity that I feel like I need loaves of today. 
It's something that I wish I could turn all my stones into. This scripture invites me to try, excuse me, this scripture invites me not to try and find a roadmap out of the wilderness, which is what I'm inclined to do. Neither does the scripture call me to just hunker down and tough it out in the wilderness. But rather, this scripture calls us to reflect on our orientation as God's beloved children. What God spoke over Jesus at baptism, God has spoken over all the baptized. You are my beloved children in whom I am well pleased. That is a new orientation from the life that Christ has set us free from. And so this season of Lent begins with a call. A call to reflect on our orientation as God's beloved children. To reflect on our orientation as those who have been set free and liberated. To reflect on our orientation of those taken care of and watched after by an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God who can't be boxed in and who cannot be exiled from the wilderness no matter how far we feel from him. We are called to be witnesses of a good God who offers hope in the darkest and the most confusing of times. Stand with me if our musicians will come, our servers get ready. This morning during worship, Ruth talked about Lent, and she talked about that it's a time in which we fast and do some practices of self-denial, but also she mentioned it's a time when we think about God's faithfulness to us. God's faithfulness to us. Oftentimes when we read narratives about temptation, we leave with this great burden, right? Like, it's all on me to resist temptation. But I think the scripture is providing a whole new picture than just that. It's not just that God is encouraging us to resist temptation or to escape temptation. But rather, Jesus is showing us how we can imagine and meditate and reflect on God's faithfulness in the midst of temptation. And in the midst of our wildernesses. To remind ourselves that it is God who feeds us and sustains us. That we don't live because we have food to eat. We live because God has given us air to breathe. He has breathed in us with his spirit and animated us into life. To remember that yes, God is faithful to watch after us, but that we shouldn't spend our lives running around checking to see if God is still there and testing to see if he'll do what he says he will do. But instead, to live in the conscious knowledge that God is there and that God is faithful. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us. That his rod and his staff, they bring comfort to us. And that because of all of that, there is hope. So this morning, I don't stand before you with any magical formulas on how to beat temptation or even how to beat grief or how to get out of it or how to run away from it, but rather an invitation to sit in the knowledge of a good God who's present despite what we're going through and what our circumstances offer us. Amen. This morning, you're all invited to come and receive communion. If you're a guest with us and this is your first time um, and you're not familiar with how we do it, we invite you to come and receive communion. If you don't want to receive communion, 
That's fine. Obligated to. There's no judgment here. But if you would like to come, this is an open table. You're all welcome. We receive communion by intinction here at Renovatus, which means that we dip the bread in the cup and receive it, receiving from the same loaf and the same cup as a testimony to the oneness and the faithfulness of God and the body of Christ. But we also know that some prefer other means of receiving communion. If you come from a more Catholic background, you may prefer to drink from the common cup. And so this morning we're introducing a new opportunity for you into our communion service, and that is if you choose to drink from a common cup, just let our servers know, and they will serve you from a common cup. We strive here at Renovatus to be ecumenical in nature and to pull from all the different traditions that we have been blessed with in the Christian faith, and some would prefer that, and so we're going to offer that for those who prefer that. We have prayer partners on either side this morning. If you need prayer for anything, we would love to pray with you. Even if you're not receiving communion and you want prayer, please come see one of our prayer partners. And they are the ones appointed to pray for you this morning, and they will do so. Let's read the invitation together. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it's the Lord who invites you and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.